If we examine the teachings of the Buddha beyond the cultural trappings, it is important to keep in mind the aim of the Buddha. Traditionally, it's said that his purpose was to help us to awaken, to be enlightened, and to be liberated. Yet another way we can look at the Buddha and the purpose of the Buddha is to see the Buddha as a symbol, a symbol of a human being, female or male, who has developed all of her or his potential, a symbol of a person who has healed the inner division, who has developed a balance of the feminine and masculine energy of softness and strength and found a deeper inner unity. From this perspective, the aim would be for us to fully realize our own inner security, power and possibilities, to unfold fully from within, just like a flower does if we give it the right conditions. This potential is something that we inherit by being born, and the path is one of discovering and of creating the right conditions for ourselves to open. Tonight I would like to begin to explore the ten paramis. These are traditionally defined as the accumulated force of purity in the mind. Or, we can say that our inner qualities that can be cultivated, which facilitate a healthy mind and a healthy life. We can investigate the paramis from these two perspectives, through the traditional form, and also looking carefully at the possible abuse and dangers and pitfalls that arise if these teachings are presented or if they're swallowed whole without distinguishing their purpose, their aim, from the cultural snares which devalue or destroy the feminine. This is a quote about form itself. Part of the nature of a form seems to be that it is communal, that it can be bequeathed and inherited, that it can be taught, not as an instance, as a relic, but as a way still usable. Both its validity and its availability depend upon our common understanding that we humans are all fundamentally alike. Forms are broken, usually, on the authority of the opposing principle that we are all fundamentally different. Each individual, each experience, each life is assumed to be unique. Hence, each individual should be free to express her or his unique self in a way appropriate, appropriately unique. 
both the communal and the individual emphasis can be carried to extremes, and the extremity of each is loneliness. One can be lonely in the totalitarian crowd in which no difference is perceived or tolerated. And one can be lonely in the difference or uniqueness of individuality in which community or sameness is repudiated. I'm beginning with this quote about form because it seems necessary to me to understand our past, our roots, and the traditions we seek guidance from. It seems necessary to look at what we have inherited and to work at judging and correcting it. We need to assess what is destructive for us rather than completely rejecting the forms from the past. We can assess the forms from the soil of our own experience and understanding using what is nourishing and fertile for us and letting go that which is harmful. When we learn that most of the spiritual traditions that we have inherited in our time have been male-oriented and dominated, they have disempowered women, and that this is determined culturally, it's handed down. Then we have to look carefully at the forms to see what we, as women and as human beings on this planet, who need to heal the feminine within, find useful and respectful and ultimately freeing for ourselves. If we can explore from these two perspectives, we might discover the balance between the extreme of the communal, that of rigid tradition, or the extreme of the individual, that of repudiating community, and therefore having little to pass on to our children. Traditionally, there are ten paramis, and they're given in order. Giving, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truth, resolution, love, and equanimity. Each one is essential for awakening and opening, and they're all interdependent. They all affect each other. Most important, each one involves our world of action and our world of wisdom. Therefore, they're important for creating a balanced atmosphere in our outer and our inner life. I'm choosing to talk about the paramis because they all apply to our daily life situations as well as to this retreat situation and because they seem to be the essence of the interconnectedness of our hearts and minds and our actions. All of the paramis could be said to help aid a true harmony 
within a person, within one's relationships, in one's community, and in the universe. The first parami is that of generosity or of dana. I prefer to think of it as letting go. Traditionally, it is practiced in three ways, by the giving of material things, the giving of fearlessness, and the givings of the dharma or of the truth. The Buddha said, If you knew what I knew, you wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. This is an example of what the parami of giving means traditionally. It's not that a person is good for giving or evil for not giving. It is something very different. It's a spontaneous action based on the heart of compassion and of wisdom. If you knew what I knew. Some moments we're aware of this interconnectedness of living things. We have glimpses of this ecology of energy and we see that life is a constant transformation and recycling of energy. When we are able to let go and to give spontaneously, this reinforces the sense of we are the world. We extend beyond our limited sense of our own body and our own eye and truly share from the center of our own being, which is also the center of the universe. In all relationship, there is subject and object. We can at times feel in our relationships the actual love between the subject and object, the love between our eyes and a flower, between our ears and the rain, between ourselves and another. We can learn to live by this love between, learn to live by that depth of understanding. Generosity is a way to express that wisdom. It's a way of waking up to our own truth, our own inner balance of heart and mind and of dignity. There is a movement of social action in Sri Lanka called the Saravoja movement. From their perspective, generosity is defined as the energy and the sweat and the skills one gives to one's family and friends and community. Giving is seen as a way of self-reliance and of working together. It is the way in which a community comes to terms with taking responsibility for itself. If the members of the community see their generosity as letting go of just working for oneself and as a way of serving the whole. One aspect of generosity that I feel is important for most women 
is to be able to give to oneself as well. Freedom is being able to give to others, balanced by being able to give to oneself and not having to give. If the giving is derived from a compulsion and a need to give, if it's the basis for our identity, then this isn't freedom and it isn't compassion. It isn't wisdom, but being in prison. It can appear to be very spiritual, very dharmic. It can look very inspiring if one's constantly giving and nurturing others. But if one is doing this from an inner should or from a pattern of not even knowing there's an alternative of it's okay to nurture myself as well as others, then there is potential for a lot of resentment and burnout. Resentment builds when it's assumed that I'm supposed to give or if one feels that one has no choice, that one just cannot say no. If if giving doesn't come from one's heart, one will eventually feel ripped off and unappreciated. Usually we can't say no because we feel guilty or selfish for taking care of ourselves or we feel a great need to please others. For me, living and working at IMS has been a great place for beginning to learn boundaries and limits. I can assess how I relate to boundaries by the path I choose to take a walk by myself. Seven years ago, when I first came on staff here, when I wanted to go for a walk by myself, I would sneak down the corridor, down the Catskills, the upper floor of the Catskills, down the annex stairs and kind of tiptoe, slink along the edge of the road and (laughs) go down along the garden and zip out onto the street before anybody could see me. And I did that because I dreaded having to run into anyone who might even suspect that I was being nice to myself. (laughs) Or in any way, which is worse, They might want to come with me, and I might have to say no. Uh, So now I can walk down the front stairs here with varying shades of guilt (laughs) or well-being, depending on my mind state. There is a great deal of strength and value in nurturing and giving. It also takes a powerful inner strength to know when it is time to give outwardly and when it is time to disconnect. That it's okay to disconnect and go inward and give oneself all the love and attention that one needs. One has to learn to trust one's limits. Mother Teresa says, giving isn't giving unless it hurts. It can be important to extend one's limits 
to be able to respond in our own way to the magnitude of suffering in this world. Yet it's also important to recognize that we are limited and that the suffering is infinite. So we must be able to take care of our own hearts as well as others. Another important aspect of giving is being able to receive. Giving implies receiving. Receiving requires a great deal of letting go, letting go of control. True receiving is a surrender, allowing oneself to feel needy and vulnerable takes a lot of inner strength. To allow oneself, to allow others to give to you is just as important as nourishing others. Receiving enables trust to grow. Being able to balance giving and receiving is creating a harmony of interconnectedness in our lives and in the universe. Most important, we each have our own unique way of balancing this in our own way. The last aspect of generosity that I'd like to look at is of women coming together for themselves. The letting go of our busy lives. In this situation, each woman devoting herself to her own inner exploration, her own truth, as well as coming together and communicating with others as a a support and resource for spiritual inspiration. There are not so many present-time role models for this. We have to recreate this. This is a kind of generosity of possibility. It might not always be easily understood by others, family and friends, but it used to be natural for women to come together. In the ancient villages at the full moon, women who were menstruating would all come together It was considered their sacred time and their powerful time. So it's very natural in tune with the universe and the seasons for women to come together. And this is just the beginning of the rebalancing process. The next parami is virtue, or sila. Traditionally, in the texts, virtue is seen as moral restraint and moral purity. We can also look at virtue as not being bound by acting good or acting evil, but one acts from a clear, open heart. This is not obedience. Beware of the good little girl. 
It is a spontaneous discipline. One's acts are based on the ecology of one's own heart. Virtue cannot be underestimated. It is the crucial factor of whether one is spiritually alive or spiritually dead. It renders a cheerful, joyful atmosphere and is the very foundation of well-being. The traditional guidelines for virtue are the five precepts. Not killing, not stealing, not taking, uh, telling the truth, sexual discretion, and not taking intoxicants which make the mind dull. These are not commandments. They are guidelines which we can use for not harming ourselves, our friends, and all beings on this planet and in the universe. It's really common sense, seeing that to live in harmony and happiness, one must listen to one's own heart and want other beings to be free from being hurt, just as I want to be free from being hurt. A helpful way of working with this is to see what action or speech leads to harmony within and what actions and speech create harm and hurt others' feelings. I feel that this is so important and I want to go into this. There are really no sins. There's just this enormous and tragic lack of self-understanding, lack of true self-love and intimacy in our lives. How does one become intimate with one's own heart? It's like we have to fall in love with ourselves. To heal the feminine energy within us, we must heal our own heart. To be true to one's feelings is to be true to one's heart. If one goes into one's own depths, one can usually find the wounded feminine, the broken heart, the broken child within, which manifests as the inability to know or trust one's own feelings, whether we are female or male. It's impossible to look at virtue without stressing becoming intimate with one's own heart which is being aware and trusting one's own feelings. For most of us, it's a long, hard road to our own true self, which includes all of our feelings. Awareness of feelings isn't a total path to liberation, yet it's important to understand that because we learn not to express our painful feelings as children, we spared our parents and others so they would love us, or at least part of us. We learned to shut down and suppress a lot of our feelings. And along the way, we shut down a lot of our vitality and aliveness and our love.
as we open to our bodies and our minds, that which was shut down surfaces again. Along the way, we need to open to the pain that we inflict on ourselves and on other beings as we slowly learn to mature, to open to the feelings of helplessness, sadness, fear, powerlessness, anger, sadness. These feelings surfacing is a part of healing. All beings share the ability to be hurt and to hurt. And we all have been hurt and we hurt others. And we all have a strength within that is stronger than these wounds. Awareness is a great protector. We learn to accept and fully feel the feelings acknowledge the pain, and let them go. If we don't feel them, they stay buried in our body, mind, and our bodies torment us, or we have to act them out. The same melodramas over and over, harming ourselves and others. One can learn from being in nature the interdependence of all things and the fragility of the ecosystem in this universe. We can see this with global pollution. When I was in Switzerland and was in the Alps, I learned that over 50% of the alpine forest is dying there. And at this point, there's nothing anybody can do to prevent some pretty devastating avalanches. There's absolutely no amount of money that can be spent or action that can be taken. The fragility of our alive planet, its interconnectedness, is so clear. Yet there's also this fragility within our own hearts as well. All of our feelings are so easily hurt. During the three-month course, I went down to the doctor's office in Barrie. And I was in the waiting room. And it was filled with uh, parents and their children. And this little boy came up to me. And I was just sitting there. And he stared at me and he said, I hate you. (laughs) And I was just sitting there and (laughs) there was part of me that just kind of didn't pay attention and acted like it was okay and I smiled and it was really polite and and then I went in and got, got checked and I came back and I sat. And I was in the hall sitting here, and it was like, I hate you. you know, and, and I couldn't let it go. It just kept, you know, the images repeat, and the thoughts repeat. And finally, I could see that my feelings were really hurt by this little kid I didn't even know. And, and we're like that. We're all like that. We're so easily hurt. 
But if I hadn't sat, if I hadn't just let it come, you know, the feeling came, and when I felt it fully, I could let it go. It wasn't personal, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) If one's unaware of one's feelings, there's very little vitality, no authenticity, no aliveness. Self-understanding and self-love and an inner well-being blossom when one is fully with one's experience. This means being fully with the totality of life, which includes our feelings within our hearts. We can then see a guideline for virtue or sila as checking in with one's own heart and one's feelings and seeing how an action will affect other beings or ourselves. If there's truly a connectedness with one's own heart and feelings and the feelings of others, then there's no need to hurt others because there won't be the scarcity of feeling, of warmth and love within. There is therefore no need to steal or kill or be sexually exploitative, to lie or be self-destructive with drugs. I wanted to touch lightly on the guideline of sexual discretion because it's usually not talked about so much in this context. I must say that the misunderstanding of our own sexuality is an area that I become more and more aware has caused a tremendous amount of pain in this world. The desire for sex can be confused with the desire for intimacy confused with the feeling of closeness, a feeling of caring and being cared for, of warmth and sharing, an opening with oneself and another. As children, most of us had very few models of close friends relating intimately, but not sexually. The journey in coming to understand the difference between sexuality and intimacy and to understand the connection between sexuality and intimacy can be arduous but very freeing. If you ask anyone who feels safe enough to really be honest with you about their past in regard to their sexuality, there are usually at least a few tinges of anguish apparent on their face. And in hearing their story, female or male, it can open up a great deal of compassion for us all. As with everything, sexuality can manifest in varying shades between the extreme of of repression and indulgence. 
it can be very sacred and very abusive and exploitative. In most spiritual traditions, to be sexual is unspiritual. I think this can be very confusing for anyone connected to their feelings. Sexuality implies such a nakedness and trust and vulnerability. There can be such potential depth of caring and openness and connection and connection with all the universe. Very profound depths can be open to if sexuality is connected to the heart, to one's feelings. If sex has no feelings, no caring, no nurturance, and no warmth, it is a personal power being used to satisfy ego needs which cannot be truly satisfied in that way. It's a dead end. Because there is no openness to the truth of the connection of the energies, sexuality can be an expression of a loving relationship of feeling and connection and of care. The ancient meaning of being a virgin is being a woman unto herself with no need to use or to harm others. Her spiritual identity is her own. She can choose to express herself sexually or not. She can take periods or all of her life to be celibate or not. The virgin can be a symbol for all human beings to be one in themselves with a highly developed sense of inner security. Human babies die if they don't receive love. Human beings need warmth, touching, and tenderness, which is necessary for physical, emotional, and mental health. The body of a woman can be spiritual. It includes being sensuous, connected to her feelings, with nature, and all of life. There's a quote from a man, Mr. Natural, (laughs) that I like a lot. Some of you have heard it before. (laughs) I tend to repeat it. Uh, That seems to sum up my feelings about virtue. That which you are, your true self, You love it, and whatever you do, you do for your own happiness. 
To find it, to know it, and to cherish it is your basic urge. Since time immemorial you loved yourself, but never wisely. Use your body and mind wisely in the service of the self. That is all. Be true to your own self. Love yourself absolutely. Do not pretend that you love others as yourself. (laughs) Unless you have realized them as one with yourself, you cannot love them. Don't pretend to be what you are not. Don't refuse to be what you are. Your love of others is the result of self-knowledge, not its cause. Without self-realization, no virtue is genuine. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it, resolutely. The last parami that I can talk about tonight is renunciation. Traditionally, renunciation is seen as leaving the household life, renouncing sense pleasures. The wisdom behind that was for people to learn that the full or deepest happiness in our life cannot depend on seeking pleasure. That love is deeper than just feeling pleasurable sensations. Love is opening to the totality, to the pleasant and the unpleasant. Renunciation or restraint especially when we're on retreat, is limiting our outer stimulation. It's a way of conserving energy and focusing the energy within. One increases attention without energy leaks. In this, one learns about simplicity, One is focusing one's attention on simple movements and sensations. This eventually develops an appreciation of being with just one breath, 
or just feeling the wind on one's face. This is very different than self-denial. Self-denial is not a space of freedom. Self-denial is denying one's aliveness because of being afraid of asking or getting what one wants or feeling like one deserves it or because of fear of rejection. There's an American Indian question that I remember a lot. Can you take from the land no more than you need, my friend? This isn't a question coming from self-denial. It comes from seeing the intermingling of all of our energies. It's learning simplicity. It's learning what's necessary for one's life and what's not necessary. This is not meant to be a punishment. It's not a life without any comforts or softness. Renunciation is knowing what one truly needs to be happy and to know what one doesn't need to be happy. There's one more quote that I'd like to give tonight, and it's from Rio Khan. And it seems to me to be the essence of renunciation. If your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Abandon this world, abandon yourself, and then the moon and the flowers will guide your way. If your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. This is the heart of renunciation, not needing to milk people, places, etc., dry, to touch the world lightly, very simple. One can feel when renunciation is there. It's when we aren't even thinking of renouncing. When we truly let go. That painful place of not being content and thinking that someone or something will make me feel better is not renouncing. It's not that wanting things are bad. It is that if we are totally dependent on our well-being, on things or people, then our world is very shaky. That heart of renunciation is always usually a surprise. The whole world seems to open. One one sees the wind flow through a field of grass, wave after wave, or one feels the sun's warmth on one's cheek, or hears the cricket sing, and one didn't really need it or want it. 
the wind is just being itself and one too is just being there with no desire for anything to happen in a specific way just being with what is happening this is most practical for our lives just being with each bite of the sandwich just walking through the supermarket you know those times when you're just there rather than running around a million miles in the future renunciation is a contented heart I'll continue this talk Saturday evening. But we can learn through the experience of living life to give the spiritual symbols and the traditions that we inherit our own meaning. We learn to give them our own meaning through the living of our lives. We learn to nourish what is workable for us and that which isn't. May all beings have a satisfied heart. May all beings love themselves completely. May all beings be as gentle as the wind. Tonight is a continu- Tonight is a continuation of my talk from the other night, which is investigating the paramis, or inner qualities, which facilitate a healthy mind and life. And opening, you can't hear it, huh? They can't hear it. What? Okay. I'll start again. (laughs) Tonight is a continuation of my talk from the other night, which is investigating the paramis, or inner qualities, which facilitate a healthy mind and a balanced life, an opening to the awesome universe. I'm trying to look at them through the traditional perspective, and also through the perspective of the possible or probable misinterpretations and abuse 
which arise unless we carefully siphon the helpful purposes and forms we have inherited from the cultural trappings which negate or devalue women or the feminine. We looked at generosity, virtue, and simplicity or renunciation. Next is wisdom and equanimity. Meditation is translated from the word bhavana. It means mental development. It's a process of introspection and of self-correction. It's not an outer authority demanding a performance or admonishing us about what to do or not to do. It's the development of an inner sense of well-being and completeness and inner strength and wisdom. In the process, one learns to develop concentration, which helps calm the mind, a kind of steadiness amidst life as it flows on. Concentration isn't enough for the growth of wisdom. One also has to see clearly what's happening. The process of life is a stream of thoughts and feelings and sensations coming and going. Life manifests through opposites. Pleasure, pain, good, bad, high, low, female, male, progress, regress, dark, light. They come and they go. One begins to see that happiness cannot depend on holding on to the flow, rather that freedom comes from understanding and feeling the process clearly and fully. Mr. Natural says, Love says that I'm everything, and wisdom says I am nothing, and between the two my life flows. Spontaneity became a way of life. Infinite affection, love, dark and quiet, radiates in all directions, embracing all, making all interesting and beautiful, significant and auspicious. Traditionally, wisdom says, I am nothing. There is no solid eye behind this flowing life. Since there is no solid eye behind appearances, wisdom is seen as not being attached to anything. Since moment by moment consciousness is being born and dies, each moment comes alive and passes away. There is this connection, disconnection, contact, separation, life, death. This is happening every moment. There's no solid eye flowing along with this. It's just thoughts, feelings, sensations coming and going. So one cultivates awareness and through the practice of not identifying with what's happening and not judging what is happening, 
the mind becomes lighter and free. I mentioned in the last talk how in most of the spiritual traditions we have inherited, a woman isn't considered spiritual if she's sexual or sensuous. When we look at this idea of freedom as being detachment, one can see that detachment has been interpreted to mean unemotional. Being connected to one's feelings isn't spiritual. If one is angry, one is reinforcing hatred. If one is sad, one is expressing attachment. The message here is that one is suffering because one is attached. The crucial point to ask here is attached to what? And what does attachment mean? How many people here have experienced the death of someone that they have felt emotionally connected with? If one is fortunate enough to be open enough to allow one's heart to be touched deeply by someone, then their death or even a change in the relationship will usually bring up powerful feelings of grief <coughs> and loneliness and despair, sadness or anger, and perhaps acceptance if one feels the process fully. It will bring up a lot of questions about the meaning of life, about the truth, about spirituality. So many of us interpret the message that attachment is suffering to mean that we shouldn't be feeling sadness, we shouldn't be feeling grief, that if only we could stop being attached, we would end all of our suffering. What this interpretation really means is that if only I could stop connecting, if only I could somehow not become attached to beings and things, then I wouldn't have to feel any painful feelings. This reinforces the already overwhelming messages we received as children, that it is better to shut down our hearts, shut down to the joy and to the pain, because the painful is unacceptable. If I don't connect with people, if I don't connect with other beings, if I don't connect with nature, then I won't have to feel any painful feelings when relationships change or end, or if the lake I swim in is dying from pollution or whatever. If I don't connect, then I won't have to feel. I won't have to feel loneliness or sadness or joy. If one looks with true clarity at this, though, one can see that this isn't wisdom. This is resistance or aversion. It's aversion to feeling the totality of life, to feeling the sorrows as well as the joy. These emotions of caring and tenderness and jealousy and sadness surface because it's part of being alive, part of connecting with life. Part of spirituality, to me, is to be able to feel the feelings fully, not to have to get rid of them to be free, 
or to be happy. Freedom is to be okay with these feelings, just as they are. They have a life of their own, just to let them live themselves out. If one is meditating, for example, and being with the energy of sadness, with the intention that if I feel the sadness this time, it will go away for good. (laughs) Is that freedom? What happens when sadness comes back tomorrow? What happens when anger leaks in tonight? (laughs) Are we present with these feelings to get rid of them or to discover them, to understand them? There's a quote I like a lot. Mountains are not afraid of heights. Seas are not ashamed of depths. Just as we learn to open more and more fully to the heights of joy and care, laughter, energy, confidence, exhilaration, warmth, equanimity, so it's also important to open to the depths of our sorrows. Attachment from this perspective is the attachment to always needing to feel good and not being able to tolerate pain. One can be attached to feeling clear to the heights. It's like being in the vast blue sky. This is attachment to detachment. (laughs) It's also possible to get attached to one's own depths, to one's emotional life. Detachment is important. How can we open to the vastness of suffering on this planet if our emotional connection and empathy isn't balanced by detachment? It's overwhelming. It is the balance of detachment and empathy that reflects wisdom. Equanimity is not needing anything to be happening in a specific way. There is such a deep happiness and courage possible in us when we aren't afraid of being with whatever comes downstream in our life. If anger appears, being identified with it, feeling like it's my anger, rather than seeing it as just anger coming through the sky like a cloud. There can be two reactions. If it's my anger and I don't want it, one usually pushes it away, denies it, represses it, becomes buried. If it is my anger and I feel right about it, And it always feels good to feel right about anger. One usually can go into endless justifications and stories about it. And usually one can get oneself so worked up to a frenzy, but one still doesn't feel it. One doesn't really feel the anger. One is just caught and overwhelmed in this endless repeating cycle. And one can't feel it and just let it go. 
I could give many examples of this. There's a person that I've known for the last couple of years that is very difficult for me to open to. It's taken me a long time to understand this. But the process has become a little more bearable. <laughs> it seems that, for me, most of the time when I'm interacting with this person, I start to feel bad about myself. I feel judged. And the person's surface appearance is usually one of smoothness and care and assuredness. But I get very confused, and I can, if I tune into my energy and go inside, I can feel that what's happening is that there's a lot of hostility coming my way. The place I hook in is that I have so much resistance to feeling judged. It brings up such feelings of unworthiness that I avoid the person altogether. It isn't really the other person at all that keeps my heart closed to the situation. It's that the feelings that come up are so painful that they're too difficult to open to. The way I found best to work with it is to just not judge myself for not being able to <laughs> open to the person. And slowly I become aware of, uh, inch by inch, that the fear is actually, first I have to feel the fear of feeling judged, and then I have to feel the actual feeling of feeling judged, and then the anger that this person could be causing me <laughs> so much anguish. And it goes on and on, and sometimes I don't hook in. Sometimes I see the person more clearly. Sometimes I think that I will have the power to communicate to that person sometime how the person um, affects me. And that's the balance between equanimity and action. Sometimes equanimity can be interpreted to mean just passive acceptance. And that's a very difficult thing for most women to work with. The conditioning is so strong that one can take the idea of being equanimous and being just okay with whatever's happening, that we don't communicate, that we don't take a step when it feels right. Freedom is being able to take the step and communicate if that feels right, or to step back and do the work within oneself when that feels right. Another example of this is when one's sitting in the hall, might be late at night, and one hears the sound of a mosquito buzzing around one's head. <laughs> Panic. The body tightens. The body goes on ready alert. All battle stations <laughs> open up. The next thought, I've already given enough blood in this lifetime. <laughs> dread, more and more resistance, more buzzing. If we look at the process a little more clearly and slow down, one usually doesn't notice that it again, it's the not wanting the panic to be there, it's the not wanting the dread to be there, 
it's really not as enormous as that tiny mosquito makes it seem. This is very important because this is the place of freedom. We can really set ourselves free in regard to painful situations if we see it clearly. To be able to be with the not wanting things to be happening and seeing clearly that it is just wisdom, the wisdom of seeing that we don't have to cling and we don't have to resist to what is happening. That the pain is really the unwillingness to go with the flow of life. The result of wisdom, of seeing clearly, is that one life does become more alive. It becomes more spontaneous. One becomes fuller with feelings and beauty. Equanimity is unshakability. Unshakability can be a great refuge. The image I have of unshakability that is harmful is that of a marine soldier. It's a quality of the mind and body that is tight and full of fear. It's an unshakability based on shutting off one's feelings and not caring, rather than an unshakability based on fearlessness, knowing one can tolerate the whole show, pleasure and pain. That's more like a flower that slowly opens. The next one is honesty. Honesty is far more expansive than the traditional way of seeing it, which is to not to tell lies. It means being able to speak the truth and be honest with ourselves at what's really happening. Having the courage to tell the truth is powerful and healing. One of the most wonderful aspects for me of women coming together is sharing of not having to be silent anymore about my life or other people's lives. Being honest is being able to say, I'm an alcoholic, or you're a child beater, or I have been raped, and this is who did it. Anyone who is familiar with alcoholism knows the crippling effects of denial. Anyone who has been sexually abused or physically beaten knows the pain of not telling the unbearable truth. This is all part of honesty. It's part of the precepts, which in my opinion isn't stressed enough. Truth and forgiveness go together. The truth makes space for understanding. It brings all the pain to the surface and makes space to forgive. If we don't tell the truth, we don't allow the space for healing and things stay buried. There is a story from quite a while ago of a meditation teacher who had some sexual relationships with the students. The difficulty I see in this situation is the denial. 
and nobody gets to feel the feelings fully and everyone harbors their own negativity about the situation and there's no room for growth or forgiveness. Instead of an openness about the situation, this teacher was banished and never allowed to teach again. There was no room for growth and this person seems to me to be broken and defeated. The silence is so painful. The denial is so painful. Being able to realize and acknowledge that we're all human, that we're all imperfect, and evil seems to me to be not being aware of one's heart, not being connected, not being honest with oneself about one's painful emotions, our unskillful actions that cause pain. We all have a a lot of mud in between our toes. It's so hard to acknowledge our own difficulties, our own painful actions, but that's really what's freeing. I'm not quite sure when this happened, but about 20 years ago in Zurich, there was a fire in a large mental hospital. The firefighters worked hard at getting the people out of the building, but it was very chaotic. Many of the people had never left the hospital or their rooms, and it was incredibly frightening for them to be outside. Some of them were so frightened that they ran back in the building and burnt to death. They just couldn't open to that much terror and that much change. I've been thinking a lot about this, It seems to me that my own sense of myself, my fear of coming out of my self-destructive patterns, can be likened to the terror of those people that they felt when they came out of the fire. (coughs) I sometimes choose to go back into the fire of my own painful patterns rather than to bear the insecurity and painful emotions of making the needed changes in my life. It can seem like I've repeated my old familiar patterns of not doing what I need to do, not even tuning into my own feelings, let alone figure out what I want. But that is so familiar, this part of me. It's like an old pair of jeans that has so many holes, it makes no sense to wear them, but I refuse to see it. And we all have our own particular patterns that spiral round and round. And each time we go around, it's a little, it's interesting in the spiral, each time we go around, it's a little more open. And if we stay aware, if we start really facing, and the awareness itself is what's healing, it gets more open. And it gets frustrating because we think, oh, it's over. (laughs) We're right back where we were. But it's a little different each time. (laughs) 
It's so powerful to come out of the silence and share. And we can't force ourselves, and we can't force anybody else to come out of the fire. Sometimes when we feel ourselves coming out of the fire, we want to bring everybody else with us, but it doesn't work that way. We can support someone to come out of the fire when they want to come out of the fire. Usually it means trusting and feeling safe. Slowly we learn that coming out of the fire and all the potential and possibilities that is implied in that is just the beginning of a new life. The next parami is patience. The traditional view of patience is acceptance, the ability to endure the desirable and the undesirable, and it manifests as tolerance. The first time I planted a garden was when I was 22 years old. I grew up in the suburbs. Some friends and I moved to a remote area of Maine and we were very enchanted and enthusiastic about growing all of our own food for the whole year. (laughs) We began to dig up part of an old field for planting corn. Since none of us had ever gardened before, (laughs) none of us knew for sure, but it seemed like an unusual amount of rocks. It was a ridiculously large garden that we decided to plant. And in the area we had first dug up for planting the corn, we were actually planting these tiny, fragile, shiny little corn seeds under rocks. (laughs) I'm not kidding. (laughs) There were a few grains of sand, but it was mostly under rocks. And it seemed impossible that they would grow. Actually, some of the people I was planting them with were tripping, and it made it (laughs) even a little more intense, you know, because (laughs) just putting this little thing under this rocks, you can imagine what was going on. (laughs) Anyone who has planted a seed knows the excitement of waiting patiently for the first sprout to peek up through the darkness, not knowing if it will be able to survive or not. One can't force the seed to grow into a plant. One creates the best condition one knows possible, water, sun, shade, compost, weeding. One helps it as much as possible and then one has to let it be. And one discovers with the process of each new garden the healthier conditions for the plants. Some of the corn seedlings in my first garden did rise up from under all of those rocks. They were very small plants. (laughs) And we did share some bites of the one delicious ear (laughs) corn. that we had for the whole year. (laughs) 
I tell this story because the process of spiritual growth is similar. <laughs> we try to create the best conditions possible for cultivating soft attention and a beautiful heart. We come here for retreat. There's silence, not too much stimulation, learning ways to balance our energy, good food, and then we let ourselves be. The same is for our daily lives. We just do the best we can. It's just like a flower. My favorite image of patience is picturing a rosebud. We want so much to open into a flower. There's a woman here tonight that said once, we want to open up so much that we want to pull the petals down. But that would kill or damage the flower. Sometimes I think patience is the most important part of our life. To be able to be with the whole process, the seed, the darkness, the roots, the seedling, the flower, the ripening, the fruit, fall, winter, seeds, new darkness. Sometimes it can seem impossible and that we're doing it all wrong, like planting corn under rocks. Our minds can seem so stormy and wild or stuck. We can become so cynical. We want to be an open flower rather than a little corn seed planted under boulders, seeming impossible conditions for growth. So we must be patient with ourselves. We make space for ourselves. We're all human. We're all growing. I think sometimes we're nicer to our gardens than to ourselves. We make so-called mistakes, which is the fertilizer, the manure. It's the only way to learn, composting ourselves. How many times have I been fooled by fear? How many times have I not trusted my own intuition? How many times do I have to be with vulnerability before I can be with it fully and not be terrified? We have to be so careful with this ideal of perfection. We don't always have the spaciousness, alertness, or energy to open to what is happening all of the time. We even learn to be patient with being impatient, with being uncompassionate, with being judging. So we take each breath at a time, one step at a time, and feel happy when we're aware of just one breath. How glorious! Patience can be a great source of constancy, like a water spring that flows out of the ground in the winter. It enables us to render the spirit of repetition and beginning again each moment. One can feel the quality of patience if we look at a situation in our life that re repeats itself every day. 
We had no running water in Maine, and the well was far from my cabin. In the winter each day, when I went to the well for water, it was the same action, pulling the toboggan, pulling the lids off the buckets, lifting the icy cover off the well, freezing hands, dropping the bucket in. Sometimes it was the most mystical, wondrous experience one could imagine. Other times it would feel like the most horrible chore, and other times it would just be okay. The whole range of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings with the same daily ritual. This applies so much to our daily life, whatever it is, washing the dishes, sweeping the floor, reading a bedtime story. Patience is necessary to see that we can only open a bit at a time, like a flower bud. As the meditation from the East is brought to the West, as the spiritual teachings and traditions are brought here to the West, the teachings or the seeds have to be planted in new soil. From, they have to form new roots. This is such different soil. It's such a different culture. The aspect of patience is that we have to slowly learn what is usable for us and what is not. It will be a lot of hard work and sweat and tears and full of surprises. There are three more paramis. They're energy, resolution, and metta, or loving-kindness. Later tonight, we can do a loving-kindness meditation together, so I won't go into that right now. There's just a few things I would like to say about it. And that is in Pali, or the language that the teachings from the Buddha are written down in. The word for heart and for mind are the same word. The heart center and the mind are considered the same thing. So when we talk about mental development or meditation, it's really the cultivation of a beautiful heart and mind. Resolution or determination. Traditionally, Resolution is doing the best we can. And it's really, I see it sort of like a rope that has all these cords going around it. 
And that determination to do the best we can is involved in all of the paramis. It's the, the determination to do the best you can strengthens all the paramis. Energy. Energy is traditionally defined as bodily and mental work for others or being indefatigable. (laughs) Energy, too, seems to me to be like that rope. Energy is what allows us to be patient. If we don't have energy, we can't be patient. If we don't have energy, we can't open. We can't open to the painful or the pleasant. So I see doing the best you can and energy as that which binds all the rest of the paramis together. It's like a rope that strengthens all of them. The balance of form and formlessness, tradition and uniqueness is life's work and play. Our lives are just like the spiral, round and round, each time new. Each breath we feel fully is within the same form. When we're sitting, it's really incredible that we're actually doing the same thing. We're, we're being with the breath, or being with the sound, or being with the sensation. In some ways, it can seem so incredibly rep- repetitive. But when the more one is open and the more one is awake, it's a parad- paradox, the more it can be new. When we fully join ourselves with each season to a garden. If we join with the soil and climate and seasons and relate to it, giving and receiving, caring with patience, we learn the way of ripening as we go. If we're open to the garden and its teachings, if we're open to life, The whole spiral is the way. There's no need to hurry to the end. And this garden is our heart. Joining ourselves to our own hearts is the way. The cultivation of a beautiful heart and a life that unfolds from within is spirituality. Being able to be true and nourishing, soft and strong, to oneself and to one's friends and community. We have to live our own truth and create our own way within the form of our within the form of limitation, within the form of form itself. The flower unfolding has to open to both the sun and the rain. We all need each other's help. We all have to keep encouraging each other to speak the truth, 
we're just beginning to come out of thousands of years of silence. The greatest poverty is that of isolation. Women have been so isolated. The greatest gift we can give to each other is our truth and courage. I encourage us all to find our own circle, our clans, our traditions, creating ways that are flexible and strong enough to pass along to our children. There's a book called The Flight of the Seventh Moon by Lynn Andrews. And in it, her teacher, Agnes, talks about in the ancient times how women had their clans and traditions. She said, when we paddle together, we go faster. May we all learn to paddle together. May we all balance the opposites inside ourselves. May we all live with sensitivity to ourselves and all beings in the universe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.